Hey, Steve. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. It's been a year. It's been a year. Yeah. Today marks the first episode of our second year. So let's take a moment to thank all of our listeners who make this effort worthwhile. If you want to do something to support us in the coming year, please tell a friend, share a Facebook or a Twitter post, or leave us a review on your podcast app. And what else should they do if they leave us a review? They should give us uh, five stars. Five stars. That's right. Yes. And a very special thank you to our patrons who help pay our bills. Amanda and Vicky, who I believe are our newest Patreon supporters. Jana, Linda, Lisa, Molly, Mary Beth, Kim, Tootie, and Barbie, who have been supporting us all along as well. If you want to join them, look for the Patreon button on our website, ohiomysteries.com, where you can also access special content, even at the $1 a month tier level. Yeah, we we have a lot of stuff up there. That's right. What a deal. So back to our regular programming, Steve. How about a little music to start us off? And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Today is Always Today by the Dayton group, the Smug Brothers. They're our featured Ohio musical artists tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about them, where to see them perform, and let you hear the rest of that song. Right now, you know what time it is. Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Oh, Steve. Hi, everyone, by the way. (laughs) i got to do my signature call out there. You know, this this might be one of my favorite mysteries. I can't wait to share it. Uh, And it's a little bit long, so you are going to need an extra log tonight. Okay. So tonight's story is about the disappearance of Richard Cox. It's a, a 1950 case about a West Point cadet from Mansfield, Ohio, who vanished from the United States Military Academy in New York after telling friends he was a little disturbed by a man who had come to visit him. Okay, vanished, gone. Vanished, gone. No trace. Yeah, well... Amnesia? No trace, but maybe trace. Okay. You're going to have to stick with this. I'm very excited about this one. This story has lots of twists and turns and theories. Um, But first, before we get to any of that, let me tell you a little bit about who Richard Colvin Cox is. So he was born in 1928 to Rupert and Minnie Cox in Mansfield, the youngest of six children. And he grew up on 3rd Street before his parents moved to Cook Road. I like throwing in these little details because if you're from that area, 
Yeah, it's always nice to say, hey, I know where Cook Road is. Yeah, exactly. So his parents were Christian scientists. They didn't believe in modern medicine. And that was something that might have actually contributed to his father's death from diabetes when Richard was just 10 years old. Richard's mom, Minnie, took over her husband's business, the Rupert Cox Insurance Agency, and she supported her family. Now, Richard, many folks called him Dick, by the way, was a hardworking youth. He loved sports, and he was sports editor of the Mansfield High School newspaper for two years. But he didn't participate in sports himself because he always had an after-school job. He was bright. He was admired. He was president of his class at Mansfield High School during his sophomore year. Uh, He was also a bit of a prankster. He enjoyed a good practical joke now and then. Seemed pretty popular. Yeah, he seemed pretty popular and uh, a guy you might want to get to know. So one summer, he took a full-time job with a road crew in Mansfield, and he fell and cut his arm badly on a scythe. And his mother, being a Christian science practitioner, did not seek help for Richard, and his arm became badly infected. This was according to an account I found. A neighbor woman intervened and took Richard to the doctor for treatment, but he ended up with a very prominent scar on his arm. Now, Richard graduated from Mansfield High School in 1946, and that fall, he enlisted in the U.S. Army. He joined what was called the United States Constabulary, a police and security force used in U.S. occupation zones in Germany after the end of World War II. Now, he spent a year in Germany. It was a place called Coburg, and it was a border town east of the Czechoslovakian border, so right there on the border with the Cold War and the communists. There he was a clerk in an army intelligence unit before being assigned to security. But Richard was already looking ahead. While he was in Germany, he applied for appointment to West Point, the U.S. Military Academy in New York, and he was accepted. So in January of 1948, he flew back across the pond and arrived on campus. Richard Cox did well there. Of 550 cadets, he academically ranked about 100. That's pretty decent. Yeah. I would be happy with that. It's higher than I ranked, and I wasn't even in there. And you weren't even in there. <laughs> and you know what? He even decided to play a little sports, something that, that he wasn't able to do during high school. Cox also had a sweetheart back home, so he was okay on the romantic front. He had proposed to Betty Timmons of Mansfield, and she said yes, and they expected to tie the knot as soon as he graduated from West Point. As you can probably guess, Richard Cox is not going to make it till then. The beginning of the end started at 4.45 p.m. on January 7, 1950. It was a Saturday. Richard is 22 years old, and he's been at West Point for two years now. The phone in the North Barracks rings, and it's picked up by Peter Haynes, a cadet whose job that day was to answer incoming calls for members of Company B-2. The voice on the other end asks for Richard Cox. Richard wasn't around, Haynes told the caller. Well, look, when he comes in, tell him to come on down here to the hotel, the caller told Haynes. He was referring to the Thayer Hotel, which is near the academy. Just tell him George called. He'll know who I am. We knew each other in Germany. I'm just up here for a little while, and tell him I'd like to get a bite to eat. Forty-five minutes later, a man enters the barracks visitor hall, where outsiders could come in to meet with the cadets, and he asked to see Richard Cox. 
He was just a hair under six feet tall, weighed about 185 pounds. He had fair hair, a fair complexion, and he wore a belted trench coat. The cadet on duty called Cox to tell him he had a visitor, and Cox came to the hall 15 minutes later. The two men shook hands and seemed pretty pleased to see each other. The stranger told Cox he looked good in his cadet uniform. Cox signed himself out of the barracks using a departure book, indicating he would have dinner off campus. But the two men didn't have dinner. Instead, they sat inside the man's parked car and shared a bottle of whiskey. Cox returned to the barracks, signed himself back in, took a shower, and fell asleep slumped over his desk, presumably intoxicated. His two roommates, Dean Welsh and Joseph Urschel, took his picture to prank him. About 9.30 p.m. that night, Cox woke from his desk and went into the hallway, and there was this strange incident. He leans over the banister, and he starts yelling, Is Alice there? And his roommates asked him, Well, who's Alice? And Cox kind of shrugged it off, saying "Ah, it was a girl that his visiting friend had mentioned. Also that night, Haynes, you know, the guy who took the initial call from George, asked Cox about the man on the other end of that phone call. Cox denied knowing him, saying the man had claimed to know him in Germany, but he didn't think so. Cox did something else strange that night. He went back down to the hall where he had signed in and out of that departure book, and he altered the time to make it appear as if he had attended the 6.30 p.m. dinner on campus instead of going off with his friend. So he kind of made it look like he was somewhere where he wasn't? Yeah, like he, like he didn't leave. Hmm. If he'd been caught doing that, he could have been charged with violating the cadet honor code and expelled. But nobody would even know he had done this until an investigation finds it two years later. Anyway, the next morning, this George was apparently weighing on Cox's mind because he told his roommates about this guy. He said George was a former U.S. Army Ranger who served in the same unit as Cox in Germany. He said the man liked to brag about killing and castrating German soldiers during the war and that he had gotten a German girl pregnant, then hanged her to get rid of the problem. Well, after this revelation... Cox and his roommates, they attended Sunday chapel service, and that afternoon, George was back. Cox signed himself out yet again to meet him, and then returned back to the hall at 4.30 p.m. Cox mentioned his visitor again to his roommates, saying he hoped he would never have to see him again. He complained about the man taking away time from his studies, complained about his character, and just in general, did not seem to want to see this guy. Well, the next six days were pretty uneventful. Then came Saturday, January 14. Cox watched a basketball game between the Army and Rutgers and then was seen in the visitor's hall talking yet again to the friend whom he said he had hoped never to see. At 5.45 p.m. that night, Cox signed out again, noting that he was going to have dinner at Hotel Fair. But first, he ran to his room. He saw his roomie there, Dean Welsh. Welsh said Cox didn't seem apprehensive about having dinner yet again with this George, but that he seemed kind of disgusted by the whole thing. Then Cox, dressed in full uniform beneath his cadet overcoat, 
returned to the lobby, and left the grounds of the academy with his visitor, never to be seen again. Hmm. Now, academy rules call for Cox to be back by 10 p.m. He was not. It didn't raise any immediate alarm. Cadets were known to struggle in late from time to time. But when he was still missing at 2.30 a.m., a superior was notified. Again, they decided to give Cox a pass. There was a punishment waiting, to be sure, but cadets were known to stay out all night anyway and just accept their punishment come morning. But morning came, and still no Cox. Now everyone became involved, including the New York State Police and the Army's Criminal Investigation Division. Quickly, they learned that neither Cox nor the man he left campus with had gotten as far as that dining room at the Thayer Hotel. Authorities made a radio appeal for information. Troops searched the grounds. Helicopters searched from the air. Over the coming days, a water reservoir on the campus was dragged. A local pond was drained, and the banks of the Hudson River was searched. The local Western Union and post office were checked to see if there had been any dealings with Cox, and local banks were visited to see if he had any accounts that might show some activity. All those avenues were dead ends. Investigators noted that Cox had circled the date January 15 in red pencil on his desk calendar with a notation, C. Kelly. Neither his roommates nor his family knew a Kelly. Now, as in C. Kelly, is it the C letter Kelly or, hey, go see Kelly? Oh, like go see Kelly. Okay. Yeah, but nobody knew who this Kelly was. Well, at first, nobody thought he had deserted. He had left $85 in his room. The civilian clothes he had worn on Christmas leave were found in his locker, having just been returned from the cleaners that morning. His wristwatch which his mother said was a prized possession, was still in his desk drawer. But then, an army sent a representative to the home of Cox's mother. She said when Cox came home for the Christmas holidays a couple weeks earlier, he sounded a bit reluctant to return to West Point, maybe even a little depressed. The army collected the letters Cox had sent his mother and scrutinized them. In some letters... He talked about disliking the Army, not agreeing with its principles or ways, and regretting his decision to go to West Point in the first place. The Army also found a letter Cox had written to his girlfriend, Betty. He'd never mailed it, and it was still in his room, and it was dated January 10th. That was three days after he met the mysterious George for the first time. And he wrote about how he had asked his mother what she'd think or do if, and here's a quote, if I'd give this place the boot it deserves, go to a business or insurance school for two years, and then sponge off her until I caught on to the cruel ways of the world. He also wrote, The thought keeps entering my mind, and I've yet to discover exactly what I'll have lost by leaving the dear old Corps. That letter was written on West Point Stationery, where Cox had drawn a face spitting on the words, United States Military Academy. Hmm. Investigators were also given another letter that had been mailed to his girlfriend as soon as he'd returned to West Point after the Christmas holiday. He said he was having trouble learning the Russian language and wrote, Russian to hell. They can't do any more than throw me out of here. What a horrible fate. 
In fact, if my civvies weren't in the cleaners, I think I'd pack my bag right now. But then he said he couldn't leave because of his mother. On February 11, 1950, the U.S. Army asked the FBI to join the investigation. At that time, the Army declared Cox a fugitive deserter. No wonder. I mean, those letters were pretty, you know, damning. But one of the first items on the FBI's agenda was to learn more about yet another letter. This one, a complete surprise. Turns out, during Christmas break, Cox had written to a woman in Germany. How did the military know this? Because a week or two after he disappeared, the letter came back to West Point marked undeliverable. And this is really interesting. The FBI opens it to find it addressed to a woman named Rosemary Vogel, asking if she'd like to exchange letters with him. He reminded Ms. Vogel that the two of them had met when his army buddy, Joseph Groner, had taken him to visit her family in Lichtenfels, West Germany, in the summer of 1947. He reminded her that they had gone boating with her and her brother. He also mentioned he was studying the Russian language and included some Russian phrases that the FBI could not decipher. And then he said, it's not too easy a language, not too good at people to deal with either. Then he closed the letter by asking her, what is the Russian situation in Lichtenfels and the vicinity? And then he wrote, I'm very interested in the Russian situation, of course, or anything else you'd like to tell me. And let me know if there is anything I can do for you. Well, the FBI, they're wondering, is this some kind of code in this letter? They turned it over to cryptograph experts while beginning their search for Rosemary Vogel. It took a year for them to find her. In February of 1951, agents found her in, of all places, Chicago. She said she didn't remember Richard Cox. Records show she had come to the U.S. in 1948. That would have been a year after Cox had said he met her. And she had married a U.S. Army sergeant named William Paget. The FBI marked Rosemary Vogel another dead end. Anyway, the manhunt for Cox continued for two months. And during that time, the military had a change of heart. Apparently, whatever their research was showing... They started to believe it unlikely that Cox would leave his family without word. On March 15, 1950, Cox was listed as absent without leave. At that time, Lieutenant Colonel Edwin Howell, West Point's provost marshal, told the media, I am convinced this is foul play. I'm sure we will not find the man alive. I can only think that Cox has been done in by George or they were both done in by somebody else. Well, the Army tried to find this man known only as George. They instructed investigators to find any military associate of Cox with the first, middle, or last name of George, then expanded the search to include any American soldier who served in Germany from 1946 to 1949. And they found a George. He had served with Cox in the intelligence unit in Coburg, West Germany. He had combat experience. He fit the physical description of witnesses. He even had a Russian-born immigrant wife whose name was Alicia. That fact brought to mind the story of how Cox had shouted the name Alice after walking from his drunken nap. That George, 
whose last name was never made public, had an alibi. Family members confirmed it. He could not have been in West Point at the time that Cox's visitor was seen. He also passed a polygraph. But, and again, the man himself was a trained polygraph operator. Investigators also talked to that Joseph Groner. He was the army buddy who took Cox to see the German woman, Rosemary Vogel, back in 1947. Groner and Cox were still good friends. Some might say they were even best friends. Groner was watched closely by the FBI in the days after Cox vanished, but they came to believe Groner wasn't involved at all. The worldwide coverage led to lots of tips. People who said they saw Cox here or there, at a dance pavilion in Korea, on a bus, married and living in Arizona. The phones of his mother and girlfriend were monitored, but no trace of Cox was found. In 1956, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover wrote Cox's mother and said in reviewing the agency's cold files, he wanted to know if the family was still seeking a location of their son. Minnie Cox wrote him back and said, yeah, please keep the file open. Ohio would be declaring her said dead in another year, but for the next year, she would appreciate the help. And in 1957, that necessary step came, with Cox still missing and declared legally dead. The story was far from dead. Over the years, it was covered by numerous media, from the Washington Post and the New York Times to Life Magazine and Red Book to True Detective. It was covered by TV shows like A Current Affair. It was the subject of books. And in 1982, the Mansfield News Journal did a 12-part series on the Richard Cox mystery. Reporter Jim Underwood reviewed 3,000 pages worth of investigation documents, some of which had never been released before. He hunted down and interviewed every witness he could find who was still alive at the time, since this was 32 years after Cox disappeared. The newspaper even found the Army buddy Joseph Groner. He said he knew that George that the military had identified, the one with the alibi and the successful lie detector test. Groner confirmed that guy, he used to brag about things he did in the war. Find him, get him to tell the truth, and you'll have your George, Groner told the Mansfield reporter. But he also suggested that finding George would reveal a truth other than homicide. Groner's own theory was that Cox had joined the CIA. Groner said when he got out of the Army in the late 1940s, he was approached about that himself. It was certainly in the realm of possibility that they had also reached out to Cox. The News Journal also found the mysterious German woman, Rosemary Vogel, for that 1982 series. She was now a grandmother living in California. And guess what? What? She remembered Cox after all. So she didn't remember him back then. She didn't back then. She said when the FBI I talked to her, she, he didn't come to her. But in later years, she found and exchanged letters with that Army buddy, Joseph Groner, and he jogged her memory by sharing the photos and helping her recall that young soldier that they had boated with that summer in Germany. Vogel said she was 15 or 16 back then. She also guessed why Cox was repeatedly asking her about the Russians in that letter that she never received. 
The summer they met, she said she and Cox talked a lot about the communists, how her family was afraid of them, and how Cox himself detested them. Reporter Underwood also did an interview with a man named Ralph E. Johns. He was a high school classmate of Richard Cox, who went on to become a Mansfield judge. And Judge Johns said that back in the 1950s, he had an interesting conversation with a local FBI agent. He said that an agent named Vince Napoli had told him that Cox was alive and that the FBI had been within 24 hours of grabbing him, but that he was suddenly pulled off the case. Judge Johns speculated that maybe, just maybe, the FBI had been pulled off the case after learning Cox had been tapped for some secret government agency like the CIA. There was other reason to think Richard Cox was still alive. You see, after Cox disappeared, there were two very credible reports of him being seen in Washington, D.C. in 1952 and again in Florida in 1960. So that 1952 sighting, it was reported by Ernest Shotwell Jr., who knew Cox pretty well. They went to preparatory school at West Point that first year, dining with each other, even hanging out on bars and going on dates together. Preparatory school is where West Point candidates go before final acceptance to the academy. Shotwell himself failed the physical exam and left the school in 1948, and he lost track of Cox after that. But two years after Cox went missing, so we're again, we're in March of 1952, Shawa was drinking in a Washington, D.C. restaurant when he looked up to see Cox sitting at a table near a rear window. Shotwell went to join him. Shotwell said he knew Cox had been missing a couple years earlier, but assumed he had been found and returned to West Point since, obviously, Cox was now sitting before him. Shotwell said he asked Cox what he was doing in Washington, and Cox said, well, he resigned from the academy, and he was going to work in Germany for himself. He didn't say what kind of work. He also appeared really uncomfortable. He acted startled when Shotwell recognized him, wasn't particularly friendly during their conversation, never offered to shake hands, and five minutes after Shotwell greeted him, Cox got up and left. Authorities, however, didn't know about this sighting until two years later because, as I said, Shotwell assumed Cox was no longer missing. It wasn't until Shotwell saw a story about Cox in a magazine that he reported his conversation to the FBI. So just to reaffirm the timing here, Cox disappeared in 50, Shotwell saw him in 52, then reported seeing him to the FBI in 54. That means the trail is already two years cold when FBI agents descend on the restaurant where that meeting took place. They found an employee who looked at Cox's picture and said it resembled a man who occasionally had breakfast at the restaurant. Cox must have saw the risk in having been seen because surveillance at the restaurant for several months turned up nothing. The second sighting that suggested Cox might still be alive was in May of 1960. It involved an FBI informant who was sitting at a bar near Orlando, Florida. He was chatting with a pretty girl named Allie. Allie said she was from Key West and was waiting for her date to arrive. And when Allie's date entered the bar, he identified himself to the stranger as R.C. Mansfield. The woman later called him Richard. The trio had several drinks, and as they warmed up to each other, this R.C. Mansfield started talking about serving in the Army in West Germany. 
He was so glowing in his comments about the service. The man asked him why he didn't stay in the military. Richard told him he couldn't, that he was dead so far as his mother and the army was concerned. He said he'd been dead for a number of years, as a matter of fact, and then revealed to the man that his real name was Cox. Over casual talk, he said he liked scuba diving and had done some diving with clubs in Miami and Key West. And then at one point, this Cox said, Castro's time in office in Cuba is limited. Remember that, because I'm going to get back to that in a minute. The informant and the guy calling himself Cox and the gal known as Allie, they have a pleasant evening and they even make plans to meet again. So when the informant goes to report all of this to the FBI, agents stake out where the informant is supposed to meet Cox. But Cox and his girlfriend don't show up and are never seen again. The FBI thought this was a real legitimate encounter. Their informant had a very reliable track record. And since Cox had been missing a decade at this point, it was a case that had been out of the news and not of the fresh variety that brings crackpots out of the woodwork. And soon enough, the FBI would come to wonder about that strange comment that Cox had said about Castro. Because one year after the bar meetup, the Bay of Pigs invasion happened. That's an event where the U.S. military trained and planned for an invasion of Cuba from Florida. If that man was indeed Cox, was he predicting an end to Castro because he had some inside intelligence about the upcoming invasion? Many people have tried to sort this all out. In 1996, an author, Harry Mayhoffer, wrote a book called Oblivion, in which he recounted a decade-long research effort by a man named Marshall Jacobs. Jacobs was a retired high school history who had become obsessed with the Cox case. The one-time teacher had interviewed dozens of classmates and friends of Cox and pored over old investigation records. And his conclusion that it very likely Cox left voluntarily and that the stranger named George may have been helping him start a new career and a new life. And then there was the story of William K. Hill, a retired U.S. Army sergeant who served with Cox in Coburg, West Germany. Hill said his and Cox's duties brought them in almost daily contact with U.S. and Soviet intelligence agents. In a 1982 interview with the Mansfield News Journal, Hill said back in 47, Cox and he were assigned to accompany some secret service agents to the border between East and West Germany. There, an argument between U.S. and Russian agents broke out. One side opened fire, and he and Cox returned fire. Cox killed one of the Russian agents. Hill also told investigators that he knew George that George had killed that pregnant German girl and dumped her body in a boxcar and that the army covered it up to avoid embarrassment. And get this, Hill said he knew an Alice. He said Richard Cox lived with an Alice in Germany. It's probably a good time to remind you that the FBI informant in Orlando, Florida, said the man alleging to be Richard Cox was with a girlfriend named Allie. Hmm. Kind of makes you wonder. All right. In 1982, Cox's sisters told the Mansfield reporter that they still believed their brother had been murdered. They said there was no way he would have lived out his entire life without ever contacting the people who left him. 
Whether a deserter, a secret agent, or the victim of foul play, Richard Colvin Cox remains the only West Point cadet to have disappeared without a trace. In 1976, a U.S. Army memo advised that the Cox case was officially closed as far as they were concerned, and that Cox was no longer wanted by the Army. I'm kind of leaning to CIA myself, too, but... uh... It also has ties to, uh, I'm sure James Renner will find this interesting, is Mara Murray. She wasn't a cadet at the time because she quit before going in front of the honor board because she was going to get pretty much tossed out after that. But there's another one who kind of went missing. Maybe they're both CIA. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, this is a good time to bring on our armchair detective. Tonight, we welcome Mark Turner from Akron, who's back for a repeat visit. Hi, Mark. Hey, how are you? Mark is a journalism instructor at Kent State University. And, Mark, the last time you were with us, we tackled a really fascinating case of the disappearance of Mel Wiley. Mel Wiley, yeah. Yes, you remember that one? <laughs> I do, very much. You know, this case reminds me of that a bit, and that truly, this story could go either way. Absolutely, It could Absolutely. be foul play, or it could be somebody just walked away from one life to start another. Absolutely. So, Mark, I'm a little curious <laughs> as to whether your theory on this case Changed as you received more detail. As I was looking things up, I looked at the uh, Life magazine article to kind of get some ideas about you know what avenues I should follow. Uh, and I was struck by the uh, one of the roommates said, you know, this case has so many directions and none of them go in any in any distance. You know, they all stop really really short of getting to any sort of point. So. When I first thought about it, I said, oh, yeah, something bad happened to this guy. I mean, he was meeting with George, who didn't seem to be, you know, kind of nefarious, right? He seemed to be right, a little right. uh, suspect, a little sketchy. Totally the kind of guy capable of taking you out onto dinner and <laughs> killing you. Exactly. But then as it went on and on, I kind of thought, well, maybe he did just walk away. Or maybe he did join the CIA or had some sort of secret mission that he was going to accomplish. Um, you know, it could also explain some of the conversation Cox was having with his roomies. Like, right. oh, this guy's bothering, you know, this guy's disturbing. And these are, maybe it was all a game. Maybe he was just setting him up because he, it benefited the CIA or the agency that he was going to be joining in some way for him to be dead exactly. and not missing. Exactly. So I ha- maybe. No, I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. Does it does it benefit the CIA if you are presumed dead as opposed to missing? I would think so, depending on where he was going. If he was, say, going back to West Germany and, and they didn't want them to think that, you know, he's still working for the army or in any way affiliated with the military, then maybe so. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it would help to just really be a ghost. Yeah. And yeah. not have ties to anything. Right. Did you think it was strange, though, the Kelly? I, I, I know it seems like a small thing, but see Kelly? And that didn't go anywhere, and nobody knew Kelly. That just seemed really, really strange. Maybe it's just a red herring, but it seemed odd to me that they didn't follow that a little bit further. If my whole life is living in a barracks and seeing my family and having a girlfriend, or in my case, boyfriend, I'm assuming if you toss out a name, somebody in one of those venues is going to know who I'm talking about. Exactly. Either my family's going to know, or my friends are going to know, or my roommates are going to know, 
or the place I work for is going to know. And for nobody to know who that Kelly was. Seems so strange to me. Unless it's like you say, he's planning little things around to make himself, or like something seems suspicious more than just him walking away or joining the CIA. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, so manipulative. I know. So crafty. I love the part about the uh, FBI informant, though. It's sort of convenient, right? To have an informant seeing you uh, and pointing you in different directions. What do you... What do you I mean, the so I, what do you think was uh, going on? Don't you don't know. believe it? Well, I wonder. You know, they brought the FBI in, but then the FBI, if you look at his friend John's, the uh, judge, and he says, you know, I talked to the FBI, and they had to go in a different direction. They had to leave the case alone. Well, all this sort of adds up that the FBI would want to start putting out different feeling, you know, different ways of getting rid of or saying that Cox is somewhere else. So, I don't know. It just seems strange that it was so convenient to have this informant pop up in Orlando, Florida, describe him perfectly, describe Alice or Allie perfectly. It just seemed a little convenient. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, what are the chances that an FBI informant is going to be at the bar where one of the most famous missing people shows up and reveals his life story to him? <laughs> right, tells him everything. That's weird. Yeah, that it just seems really strange. I bought it. Did you? I was buying it. Okay. Uh, well, maybe it may be true. It may no. be true. Maybe you've got, you've got me rethinking <laughs> okay, good. that. Good. You know who I do buy who? is the Shotwell at the restaurant in Washington D.C. Yes, because this guy's just not seeing him from a distance, and then people are saying, "Well, maybe you, you know, didn't see right." right. He actually sat down and had a conversation <laughs> with the guy. Exactly. I'm thinking that's yeah, 100 slam dunk absolutely. for me. Absolutely, and the way he said he acted afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's. I think you're right. And I buy Shotwell's story that, hey, I didn't report it because I assumed if I'm sitting here talking to him... He'd be found. He He's was back. found. Yeah. He's back. I, I'm the one who's, you know, lost track of right. what's going on in this case. Yeah. Why do you think he left everything behind, though? His, the wristwatch, the money, which I looked up, by the way, and it's worth... Uh, the, the $85 would have been worth uh, uh, around $900 in today's money. Whoa. So that's not a small amount of money if you're trying to become different or leave your life behind. And your wristwatch, you would have had a real good excuse to take that because nobody's going to think that you... You wouldn't be wearing it. Right. Even. Yeah. So I I think if you're going to set up the case for you to be dead, you have to do certain things, and that includes leaving everything behind. That's true. So there are no excuses. But I was going to ask you, you know, the one thing that always catches me when I think about people disappearing is if you're going to leave your mother and your five siblings and never see them again, what is going on in your life that enables you to be able to do that? And one thing that I did in this case is I, I shared that weird little story about how his mom didn't get him help when he was injured and how his dad probably died because of his extreme religious beliefs and I actually put that in there because I wanted to use that I'm not judging them at all but it is a possibility that when he joined the military he became very worldly you know maybe he had less in common with his family and maybe that's why it was easier for him to walk away and never see his family again I totally agree I think the idea that you have become worldly 
I mean, he went to West Germany. He obviously had some experiences there. He killed a Russian agent. <laughs> You're right. You're not the same person anymore, right? No. And I think people look and say, how is my, you know, do I change these people's lives in any way? And he probably could see himself being completely separate and them going on with their lives and him going on with his life. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think he probably saw himself as distant from them now or then. Now, there was a point, another thing I wanted to bring up, there was a point where the U.S. Army actually declared him a deserter. Right. For good reason. Yes. So, you know, I'm reading these letters. I'm betting my next paycheck <laughs> that this guy has deserted. Right. Okay. Drawing a face, spitting on the uh, yeah. West Point logo. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> deserted. And then, um, a month later, they come out, and this guy says, you know what, um... We think he's dead. We think he's been murdered. Him and possibly even George, either by George or him and George are both dead. Right. And I'm thinking, whoa, what caused that conclusion? Because you still haven't shown me anything that indicates anything other than desertion. So do you think maybe, I mean, the CIA is a government agency. The military is the government. Do you think somebody high up in one got to somebody high up in the other and said, we need this guy to be dead. Could you stop calling him a deserter? <laughs> right. No, that makes perfect sense. It, it, it feels too conspiracy-oriented. I'm really not one of those people who believe in all the conspiracies going on, but that one feels genuine. Like, or, organically, that's how they would work together to make this look this way. I like the way you put that, yeah. organically. That's yeah. exactly what it feels like, because I just don't see a reason for changing your mind on this. No, that's a 180, and it's so quickly. Yeah. You know, so. Especially when there's like no evidence that comes up that he's been murdered. Right. There's no like, oh, look, we found his bloody shirt. So now we're going to say it's foul play. Nothing, Nothing happened. No. Just an opinion. Right. I think an opinion planted by a supervisor. <laughs> okay. So then we have that weird little thing where he goes down and changes the time Why? on his departure book. Yeah. Must have been important to him for some reason, but nobody's figured it out. No, it doesn't make any sense. Why was it important to have dinner or bleed to have dinner on on the on base campus. You know, on campus? I yeah. don't know. I think it's a sign that he was manipulating the whole scenario. And whatever was happening, he needed that to be some evidence only nobody was smart enough to figure out what that was. Right. So he knew that it was important, but we didn't. Now, the letter to Rosemary Vogel. Oh. What was that letter about? What was he doing? I'm really, you know, there's one thing, key thing in there for me is they had phrases that he wrote in Russian that they couldn't decipher or couldn't understand. Well, if it's Russian, couldn't you just get a translator? Right. I don't, I think it said something that was probably more. Spy-like? He's more cryptic than than that. So, yeah, I mean, that was a very Russian-centered kind of conversation he wanted to have with her. It was a lot going on in that letter, but it all seemed to lean more uh, toward, you know, some sort of, I need to know some information about these people and about these communists than it was about, hey, old friend, how's the lake? (laughs) Yeah, I, I didn't get to see the entire letter, okay. but I did not get the impression it was romantic. No. And um, the word that comes to mind is grooming. Yes. I'm wondering if that was just a first step and maybe I met somebody over there who hated the communists like me. Maybe I can start grooming them 
in my new role since I'm going to be joining the CIA. Exactly. Maybe? I'm making a contact. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Allie, that name is too much of a stretch to think that the Alice that he was shouting down the banister and the Alice that he reportedly lived in within Germany is the alley that's in the Florida bar? I think it's all the same woman. Couldn't it be? Maybe I just want it to be for him, his sake going off and, find, and having this maybe love interest. But that's just way too close together, right? I think so, too. Yeah, I think that's all the same person. I think so, too. You know? I think that's another reason why it would make it so easy for him to leave his fiance. He had another girl. Exactly. And somebody that he apparently maybe had fallen in love with before he had even proposed. Right, right. And then finally, it appears to me that the military identified who George was. You get that impression that that guy was George. The George was George. The George that they met, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm thinking that they probably just said, yeah, that's not him because, again, supervisor gets the word. Cut it off. We don't want right. you to head down that way. Right. And so they just come out and say, yeah, we found a George. It wasn't him. <laughs> so your idea is this is all orchestrated, some sort of covert effort to get uh, Richard Cox into some sort of secret service. I think so. Okay. I, I think buy that. So. Are, you, yeah. are we both in? Yeah, we're both in. I mean, when I first started this investigation, I, you know, seriously, I was told, he, this guy's been murdered right. by this Absolutely. guy who castrates German right. who has some sort of background. hangs pregnant yes. girlfriends. You know, this bad guy did it. And by the time I was dying finding all these pieces, I'm like, oh, yeah. 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 New life somewhere. You got it. Yeah. Mark, thanks so much for being us again. I've got, I love giving you these disappearances. So <laughs> the next one I'm up for too. All right, okay. I'll get you a non-amnesia case. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, OhioMysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. The Smug Brothers formed as a home recording outfit some 15 years ago. Their members live in Dayton and Columbus, and they include Kyle Melton on vocals and guitar, Kyle Sowash on bass and vocals, Don Thrasher on drums, and Scott Tribble on guitar and keyboards. You can follow them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Bandcamp. Now, the song we're featuring tonight is from their new album, All Blur and Spark, which is available on Bandcamp or for streaming on Spotify and iTunes. The album was actually curated by fans, with financial backers helping to choose what songs went onto the final product. And all the songs recorded in Melton's basement. Thank you, Melton, for letting them record in your basement. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Well, let's have a listen. Here's the full version of Today is Always Today by the Smug Brothers. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.